Hi, I'm Imogen Watson, Work and Inspiration Editor, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. Today, we'll be discussing Camilla Kemp's decision to leave her CEO role at MNC Saatchi after three years to focus on her family, and following Adam and Eve DDB and Wyden and Kennedy's decision to break away from John Lewis and Sainsbury's respectively, we'll be discussing whether walking away will become something we see more of in Adland. It's hard to believe it, but the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war is upon us. I'll be joined later by figures from the Ukrainian creative industry. After that, we'll be discussing some campaigns that have caught our eye this week with BBH Executive Creative Director Helen Rhodes and NCA's Chief Creative Officer Ian Hartfield. Before that, our campaign reporter Charlotte Rawlings joins me to unpack some news. Welcome. Hi. So Charlotte, you broke the news that the Chief Executive of Embassy Saatchi in uh, London, Camilla Kemp, is leaving the agency after three years um, in the role to, to take a break from the industry to focus on her family. Um, she'll leave the shop at the end of March um, and MNC Satcher is still looking for her replacement. After the story broke, Charlotte, what did Camilla um, make clear on LinkedIn? So she said that this phrase about focusing on family is often connected to redundancy and when someone is hunting for something positive to say in a bit of a rough Mm -hmm. situation Mm -hmm. Um, or it could be a euphemism used by a naughty executive who's up to no good Mm -hmm. Um, but in her case she said it was actually what she was choosing to do yeah and it is that sort of thing as soon as you see that written you start to speculate Mm. um, because the the reality of it is why would someone in a top role ever choose to walk away um, from that but that is exactly what she says she's done and it reminded me of an opinion piece written by um, publicist Poxy SO, um, Alison Hode. Um, and she wrote about why what she learned from leaning out. Um, she left her job at, as Chief Strategy Officer at BBH um, when her family member was diagnosed with a critical health condition. Um, and it's obviously quite a daunting decision. And now she's CSO of Publicist Spoke, so I guess it didn't, you know, prevent her from stop her when she leaned back in. Um she acknowledged it's a privilege in this piece and she wrote about the untapped value of leaning out. What else did she, what did she say about that? Uh, she just said that leaning out has enriched her perspective on brands as a consumer, her perspective on ideas as a citizen, and also her perspective on clients and colleagues as a human being. Mm, and I think this sort of whole, if more people that sort of openly admit that they're leaning out, um, I, I just think it's, it, it, you shouldn't be able to not do it because you're feared you might not get back in. Yeah, she's proof that you you can, you know, walk away and still be taken back into the industry. It's also quite like refreshing to see these people that, you know, have been in the industry for so many years, Mm. taking some time out to do what they want to do, do what they need to do Mm -hmm. without the fear of them not being able to get back in. Mm -hmm. I think that we're just our careers are so like get to the next step, get to the next step that we don't actually realize the journey that we're on. And I think that it's such a brave move to get to that position and go, actually, I'm not spending enough time with my family. Yeah. And that comes first. Yeah, I think Um, it's I think that sort of attitude towards work is admirable because mm. um, it's proving that because Camilla also said in her LinkedIn post that she was listening to her body and how she needed to slow Mm. down, which I thought was really good that she recognized that because I think not a lot of people would think that listening mm. to your body is is a sign of strength it's not a sign of weakness mm-hmm. so I think it's really good I think it's cool and it'd be nice to sort of I wonder whether it'll become a growing trend and then we'll see more mm. of it happening um but I think yeah like I say very brave to step away um but I'm sure she'll be back um and earlier this month um 
Adam and Eve DDB shocked Adland. <laughs> it was an exciting day in the office um, when it chose not to repitch for John Lewis partnership. And that very closely was followed by Biden and Kennedy, who decided not to take part in the creative review posed by their longtime partner, uh, Sainsbury's. Um, although incumbents are at a dis- disadvantage when it comes to non-statutory review, I think only 20% reportedly succeed. Walking away is a decision that really gets taken lightly. Um, and so the top of our question of the week, we we asked industry leaders in, um, whether walking away is something that we will see more of in Adland. Um, what were some of the responses, Charlotte? Did anyone 100% believe agencies should always walk away from any, any of the repitching? So the general consensus in the piece was that Pitches are expensive and time consuming and that agencies should only repitch if they have a good chance. Um, And in order for that to happen, the client needs to be honest about the agency's chances of success um, and the agency needs to be realistic about its capabilities as well, um, while also considering things like workload and staff Mm. well-being. Um, in terms of people in the piece that believe that agencies should 100% walk away from repitches um, was Paul Phillips, managing director at AAR. And he had an interesting take because he said um, that it should be an easy decision um, and that if an agency is invited to repitch, um, with the exception of government and similar statutory reviews, the agency should decline every time with grace. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. Um, I think it's very much sort of what Adam and Eve done. They've just decided and they've walked away and they've sort of kept, they haven't mm. soured it, their relationship any further. Well, it's that it's that point of, you know, if you feel like you haven't showed them mm. what what you're capable of and what you can do mm-hmm. already, mm-hmm. then, you know... What more do you want? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but I guess it very, very much depends on the brand and the, and the accountant itself. Mm. Um, There's a lot of factors. Yeah, was there anyone who was on the fence? So Nagme Tahiri, Chief Business Development Officer of Publicist Media UK, said that agencies will possibly walk away more unless there are valid reasons for repitching. She also said that repitching is only necessary if the advertiser feels that they need a new agency to achieve their business objectives or governance requirements. So quite similarly to what others had said, um, incumbent agencies should only be invited to repitch if they have a genuine and equal chance of winning. Um, and she said not just as a courtesy gesture mm. or a benchmark. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's almost like you should like, that should be clear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, once again, leaning into this idea of like honesty and transparency, mm. which I think is just so important in the pitch process. In anyway. any relationship. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. any relationship, not just pitching. <laughs> it's a lot of parallels. Um, but yeah, um, and yeah, she also said that advertisers should speak with the incumbent agency prior to calling a pitch and, you know, defining any problem areas that exist and work with them to resolve them, which, I mean, the more I'm talking about this, the more I'm thinking <laughs> it is literally like an actual relationship. No, it is. Um, it fully is. Because it's also, uh, you know, how Relationships you, change. How are you going to expect someone to grow and deliver what mm. you want if you don't mm. tell them your needs? Exactly. Communication is key. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Charlotte, for coming in to chat about the news. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> It's been one long year since Vladimir Putin's Russian forces crossed into Ukrainian territory with no end in sight. While the country's creative industry was turned upside down in the early chaos of the Russian invasion, in times of conflict, creativity will prevail. Ukrainian creativity has flourished as people fight to keep the economy going. As a result, the country's advertising economy appears to be bouncing back.
Here to discuss their experience of the war so far, I'm joined by Sergey Ern, McCann Keeves, Chief Executive and Bickerstaff Creative Group Head, Sergey Artemenko. Thank you so much for joining the campaign podcast today. To note, we're recording on Wednesday, um, with Friday being the year anniversary of the Ukraine war. Thank you so much for joining the campaign podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for hosting us. No, no worries. Now, Sergey, when war broke out, McCann Keefe kept his office space uh, open as a resilience venue. Can you talk our listeners through that setup? It was a bit later that we set up resilience uh, office, what we call. Uh, when the war broke up, uh, we were at home mostly uh, because uh, since 2020, we lived in this uh, mixed hybrid uh, mode of uh, working from home and sometimes coming to the office. So basically people were outside uh, their homes and then everyone was uh, shocked, I would say, because uh, this was not, uh, I mean, it's not every day that, uh, as you can imagine, uh, you are being invaded by the country with second largest army in the world. As it turned out, fortunately, it's not the second strongest in the world anymore. <laughs> so basically, we were not ready as an agency and we were not ready as uh, people. Uh, my wife kept asking me, so do we have to get ready or not? And I said, well, not really, but, you know, just put full tank of gas just in case. And this is what helped us actually in the first day. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, uh, our office uh, was more or less empty. I came to the office uh, one month after uh, the full-scale uh, invasion, sorry, uh, which was end of uh, March. And uh, I made picture from the terrace, which was overlooking, uh, not overlooking, but the sounds of Bucha and Irpin were very loud there. And uh, I made this picture and uh, sent to all McKenners uh, saying, we will be back. So fortunately, this came to be true. We were back. But physically, physically, people would come back to the office uh, starting from May, when it was already uh, clear that Kiev is safer. Not safe, but safer place. Have you found more people are coming in to work on a daily basis? When staff come in, is it to work collaboratively or for a sense of normality? I would say it's uh, brutally honest uh, that people started to uh, populate uh, the office back uh, in uh, November, October, November, uh, when uh, there were problems with electricity because uh, Russians started to target uh, civil infrastructure. And that's when most of the uh, internet and electricity at the apartments, at uh, team members' apartments, uh, were off for several days, basically. So some people were without electricity for two or three days. And that's when office uh, set up uh, backup electricity uh, generator and uh, made sure that there is internet. So we had several providers to make sure that it's uninterrupted. And uh, that's when people came back. And uh, I was happy to see more and more people every day here on one side. But on the other, I understand that the reason for this is not that uh, much of happiness. Sergey, Bickerstaff changed to remote work when the war started. Has the office reopened or is Bickerstaff still working on it? When the war started, we get rid of, uh, of our office because all the people, you know, scared on different parts of our country. Some went to villages. Me and my wife, for example, we went to our relatives in the village near Kiev. And so half of our team went abroad. And uh, actually, we worked in this uh, kind of style for a majority of uh, last year. But, you know, now we have... Uh, now, for now, a small office with uh, one generator, electricity generator, and one Starlink. 
So I guess Starlink is like the <laughs> the uh, you know must-have thing for uh, people who work in Ukraine. Although uh, for like two weeks, uh, for, for last two weeks, we don't have any problems with electricity. But you know, for like just uh, for uh, to, to be sure, like that, any rockets will damage anything. You know, we have a generator and a Starlink in our office, and so yeah, something like that. So if if you want, you can go there. If you want, you can stay home or uh, meet somewhere in a cafe or a restaurant and uh, like brainstorm there. So no no problem with that. We get used to uh, different conditions. We can work. You say that obviously the people moved around Ukraine. Is there are many people that moved abroad? Uh, it's like 50-50. You know, um, uh, half of the people went abroad uh, at the first months and some of them went back uh, when uh, when uh, Russian army uh, left uh, the key region. But, you know, the majority of people now are working in Ukraine. The majority of people are working in Ukraine now. So we have uh, our second office in uh, Lisbon, in Portugal. So, uh, you know, like it's it's free if someone wants to, to go to move to work there. It's it's not a problem. Have you found it difficult to work collaboratively around the world um, or have you figured out a smoother process? No, that's that's actually not a problem. You know, we from the moment we our agency was found, you know, we we were founded during global pandemic during COVID-19. So at this time, everyone was working from home. So uh, and after that, we, we, we are now experiencing war. So actually, it's like. In our DNA, in the DNA of our uh, company, of our bigger stuff, to work despite everything. So despite any conditions. And so we also have our, uh, uh, like, uh, call it term, collective Pokemon, we oh. call it. So it means that when we are walking on a brief, we are united in everything. We storm together, we're working on the insides. And no matter where you are now, in Kiev, in Lisbon, in Poland, uh, you know, like any any place in the, wor- in the world, we are united by, you know, in Telegram, in uh, Zoom, in, uh, you know, like different platforms where, where, where we collaborate with each other and uh, brainstorm and et cetera, et cetera. So for us, it's, it's not a problem. Has the same been for you too, Sergey? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, we have, I think, up to 10 people I abroad. And uh, I think there are some difficulties with those who work from the States uh, because of time difference, of course. And I have my client service director in uh, in the valley. Uh, no, no, I, I think in, she's in LA. And uh, yes, sometimes it's kind of uh, harder to arrange uh, meetings. But otherwise, those who are in Europe, it's no problem. It's uh, one hour difference. And then the rest, maybe up to five people we have across Ukraine. And uh, most of the team is is in Kiev or suburbs. Uh, so nearby that they can come to the office uh, at any moment when there is no shelling. And- Obviously, McCann Keefe is part of a global holding company. Has that helped the agency in the face of the war? Well, I, I would call this uh, part of my uh, professional connection to the world. And not only professional, but uh, even the personal connection to the world uh, was thanks to uh, McCann World Group. And uh, from day one, I think, of the invasion, that uh, I received messages from half of the network, uh, basically. And uh, network offices helped to employ some of our talents, namely uh, MRM Madrid, I remember, uh, McKen Warsaw, and also McKen Belgrade. They took our people on board, and uh, some people uh, are still working there. 
Also, uh, there were financial solutions from our European headquarters uh, as it helped and still are helping for us now. And uh, of course, there is PR, uh, both inside McCann World Group and uh, with the media, like this wonderful podcast that we are recording now. So we are in touch uh, both with Central New York team and uh, with McCann Europe London uh, team. Uh, but probably the most important, I think it's, it's kind of personal for me even, but the most supportive emotionally. And I dare to say part of my professional sanity uh, was uh, coming from regular contact uh, with uh, both live and uh, uh, and uh, on video uh, uh, online uh, we met in Cannes last june that's why live but uh, it came uh, with my very dear colleagues um, who kept checking up on me almost like weekly or monthly uh, this was john wright uh, regional officer uk and europe uh, mccann wall group and Katalin Dobre, our regional Central Eastern Europe creative director. Uh, they were really calling me in very different circumstances. And I was happy to talk to them, even when I put my sticky tape on the windows of my house to make sure that shelling doesn't destroy it. Mm, for sure. Siri, so, as an independent agency, um, how was Beckerstaff's business impacted? Um, did you see work dry up at the start of the war? And, and, and as, if so, as, did that improve? Uh, you know, uh, about the impact uh, of war uh, on our business, for example, if before the war, uh, social projects were for us more of a benefit for the agency. So there weren't as many requests as we wanted. But yeah, uh, such projects were more of an exception. Also, we love them very much. And so now, uh, at the, at the, when the war started, uh, social projects have become a mainstay. because there is a huge demand for social projects nowadays. And so for us, it is super important to create these projects that really have a huge potential and change the world. As uh, like, you know, our projects, war projects like to Russian mothers uh, all around the Russian world uh, for our campaign for uh, Alaska. And so we are also selling, started selling a lot more uh, design and branding for expert. Now, before the war, we had branding projects, but also like commercial communication. But now we have a lot of design and it is our design uh, expertise that is uh, somehow in demand by in a huge demand by uh, colleagues abroad. Uh, for example, uh, our last project we made for the Duke of Edinburgh's International Award. It's called the Stand By Me and uh, it's a special award body program for integration of young people to the society in different countries. Yeah. And so we started from Ukrainians because there are a lot of uh, young Ukrainians who uh, went with their parents, for example, with, the, with their moms or with their moms and dads, uh, to abroad, to different countries. And it is hard for them to find friends in this new society. You know, like yesterday you had uh, your school, you had your friends in Ukraine, and now you're in a, in a complete new country. Like It's like you're starting your game from level one and you need to adapt to these new circumstances. And so this uh, Stand By Me project, we made is a first for young ukrainians but we want to uh you know like uh, make it for uh, i mean all the uh, people who seek uh, for example seek a refuge somewhere or etc etc so to, to help them adapt to this new country to these new circumstances Sergey, are you seeing much international work? Not really actually because um, i think speaking about international work uh, 
uh, this the whole size of it was not uh, huge for us, so it, it was not sizable. Uh, also, both McCann Network and some of our clients uh, tried to help. Uh, so we did part of ideation for McCann Chicago uh, for Chevy. Uh, also a project for our client in Benelux. Uh, and uh, now we are into discussion with uh, our client uh, to be in charge of uh, a project for MENA region, which is uh, Middle East, uh, North Africa. Uh, but otherwise, I have to say that uh, we are surviving on Ukrainian clients, uh, namely international, big internationals that renewed the activities uh, in Ukraine. Uh, thanks uh, to all the help that is coming to Ukraine, we are not collapsed as consumer market. And this is really helpful. So companies like our clients, uh, Vodafone, Nestle, uh, sometimes L'Oreal, uh, MasterCard, uh, they are active. Uh, of course, there is huge decrease in uh, the scope of work. But otherwise, uh, we can work, we can survive, and we can do also social projects uh, the same, as you call, for better wealth, for better country, and uh, for the victory. Mm. Now, I spoke at the beginning how creativity has flourished during this time. So why don't we dig deeper into some of the creative work? Can you talk our listeners through the recent Art Armour initiative? Um, where did the initial idea come from? As part of our defiance, because I, I, I would say that the reaction to the war uh, at the agency was shock. And then after shock, uh, it was defiance. Uh, it, it, I think it's the same for most of Ukrainians. So it's naturally that it's the same for, uh, for our agency people. And uh, as, uh, as part of this defiance uh, move, let's say, we started to brainstorm how we can help uh, our effort. And uh, we had this idea, I think, last uh, April. Yeah, it was last April. Why not to take uh, used uh, plates from armored vests, bulletproof vests? Uh, those, but those uh, that uh, specifically uh, saved the lives of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians sometimes. And why not to turn them into art objects and sell them and use proceeds for the good? to, again, for individual protection of uh, both soldiers and civilians. So we found a client for our initiative uh, because it's, you know, it's one thing, idea, and another execution. Uh, this was charity fund uh, Ukraine for Heroes. They were doing a lot of really important work uh, across uh, Ukraine and uh, closer to front lines. And with their help, in May, June 2022, last year, we started receiving armored plates uh, straight from the battlefield in the east. Uh, fortunately, uh, Russian invaders were out of Kyiv area then, so these plates came exactly from the east. Uh, we verified that these plates saved lives. Sometimes we knew the soldiers whom they helped, but not, not always. And uh, next, with the help of our art curator, uh, Irina Yuferova, she helped us. Uh, we involved 10 uh, most famous Ukrainian uh, top painting artists. And uh, these artists uh, turned each plate into an art object with uh, their very personal yet very professional touch. So each, it, it's, each of them is different, really different, but really uh, uh, like piece of art. And uh, the official launch of the project was happening last October on Ukrainian Defenders Day, which is October 14th, in a closed subway station deep uh, underground to be secure from Russian shelling. 
And may- maybe you saw some pictures. So mm-hmm, whenever I somebody do. comes, yeah, Bo- like Bono comes yeah. to Ukraine. So he's performing <laughs> that subway station. Oh, really? that's, that's where we launched this project. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it good was, enough and- Bono. <laughs> Yeah, then uh, this project was supported by, the pre- uh, by President Zelensky, our commander-in-chief, uh, General Valery Zaluzhny, and a number of other uh, defense agencies uh, of Ukraine. And next, uh, the exhibition was formed and uh, worked uh, here in Ukraine. Uh, so all the works were available for public, first in Kiev and Lviv, and now traveling across Europe. Uh, first station was Warsaw. Mm-hmm. So Wars- uh, Warsaw, Poland hosted uh, the exhibition in January. Now it's in Tallinn, I think, opening. Today is 22nd. Yeah, it's opening tomorrow mm-hmm. in Tallinn exhibition and so on. So basically, uh, it will go all over Europe, mm-hmm. the exhibition promoting this project and then the culmination should be should happen one year after the launch in october in london mm, and uh, by that time yeah, yeah we, we invite everyone and by that time we hope to involve more international artists so mm. if by any chance you are an artist an artist now and uh, or you know somebody who is an artist and who wants to help ukraine please do go to uh, artarmor.org, drop us an email and we will plug you into the process, send you an armored plate straight from the battlefield and we will be waiting for your great piece of art uh, to be sold and uh, help us uh, to pr- protect more soldiers and to protect also more civilians uh, because, you know, uh, individual protection is very important uh, now. Even if you're a journalist and go to the uh, places like Bakhmut or Izum, you, you need to have it. So th- that's what we want to uh, use them for. So in general, is that's why we call this project uh, Art Armor, uh, art that saves uh, lives, basically, because you convert something that already proved to save lives into something that can save in the future. Sergey, you've touched on this campaign already, um, but at the beginning of the war, Bickerstaff um, brought out to Russian mothers. Um, can you explain how the information campaign targeted Russian military families? Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, I will tell you about this campaign and also about uh, all the Russian world because they are pretty close to each other. So, you know, at the beginning of war, in February, we saw that Russians' opinions could be inf- influenced. We were determined, really determined, to change uh, uh, Russians' minds to open their eyes to war because, you know, we saw they uh, didn't know uh, that the war is really going on. It was more like, you know, some, they call it special operation. So it was like, they uh, don't think it's something really serious. So we made these two projects, uh, two Russian mothers and all around the Russian world. And they both were aimed at uh, Russian people and uh, at Russian uh, disinformation. We wanted to resist it and to tell the real truth, to show the real truth to people in Russia. And for example, our uh, project to Russian mothers, where we show what's going on really, well, th- that's your kids, that's your, uh, they, they are not, not your kids anymore. There are warriors now who are like soldiers, Russian soldiers, occupiers who came to another country for no particular reason, you know? And uh, for example, our all around the Russian world campaign, where we made a campaign like uh, the campaign for Airbnb, it closed look like it. Uh, and uh, it uh, kind of was uh, like a tourist attraction campaign. So people in Russia, they were like clicking on the banner on, on a video in YouTube. 
and they appeared on a like travel site, travel aggregator, when there was a lot of uh, places you can uh, rent in Kharkiv, in um, uh, Nikolaev, in Kiev city, but that was uh, the places that were bombed by Russian missiles. And so it was quite provocative. And we got millions and billions. This, these campaigns went, went viral in Russia. And uh, uh, it was uh, that uh, really, uh, uh, like, what, what's make it viral is that uh, Russians really started to go watch these campaigns. And uh, our site for, like, uh, all around the Russian world, it was blocked uh, after it was, like, viral. And so we even got a letter from the Russian Committee of Soldiers Martyrs where when where they thanked us that we did this uh, for, for them to help them kind of ra- ra- raise attention of what's going on. And, uh, you know, a week after this campaign launched, uh, Russians, uh, it was the first time in the history of war uh, that they uh, actually acknowledged that uh, there were fatalities among the Russian soldiers because, you know, for the for like almost for the first months, it looked like uh, they're they're like invincible, you know. There's no casualties of war. But after that, after Ukrainian, you know, like ad agencies, uh, we we started to work on this uh, issue. Yeah, they. It was the first time they actually acknowledged uh, that they have losses. It's crazy to be that close to to the action in a sense. And despite the war, Bickerstaff was named best agency in Central and Eastern Europe uh, by Epica Awards and won a Can Lion uh, for your work in the island of Cortetia. Has it helped staff um, stay inspired and motivated winning all these awards? As pathetic as as it can as it may sound, you know, we had no other choice but to, to become like the best agency because if we have to be uh, just a good agency, we have to be the best agency in order to survive. You know, it's not enough just to be, you know, like good agency today in Ukraine. Mm. So we had planned to enter, you know, the European market before the war. We wanted to get well, dozens more clients, you know, uh, different awards, etc., and do it like everyone else. But life actually put everything in its place. And so we, we were forced to invent creative ways to talk about ourselves and our works. And uh, the war kind of pushed us uh, towards it, uh, towards becoming like the, the really number one agency. So it's also our superpower that, that uh, we can make the most of the minimum. So uh, war kind of teached us to you know, like launch these campaigns that have zero budget. You know, like, so our work for Galicina, that reached 33 million people in Ukraine, zero budget. Um, you know, like uh, this uh, uh, message to the Russian masses all around the Russian world. These were campaigns that were made by, we call it like bigger stuff production at most. You know, like, so we really uh, tried to do our best with our with our partners, with our, with our own uh, strengths. And it actually... Came, we came to the conclusion that we can become the best, we can uh, do the, uh, the greatest work, and it will help us boost our own creativity and uh, be on this same level for a long time. The war has taken Ukraine's creative industry to wider audiences. Um, how would you describe Ukraine's creative industry? What's the sort of style or um, what have we seen? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's totally reflective of uh, Ukrainian society at the moment. Uh, uh, so we are no more shocked at all. We understood that uh, where we are. 
we are defined for sure. And uh, by the way, yeah, we missed this very important part uh, in the beginning, but uh, I would like to say the most important probably things that uh, I would like to say big thank you, huge thank you actually to armed forces of Ukraine, the guys in the trenches, uh, thanks to whom we are here today, able to carry out intellectual discussions about creativity or whatever in relative safety. Uh, three of uh, our McKenners uh, are on the front lines, uh, although one of them just got into hospital recently from Bakhmut, uh, but he, he's fine. Uh, and my second big thank you uh, is to international allies supporting Ukraine. Uh, with your support, the bravery of our resistance uh, has very good chance to become a major victory of freedom and democratic values in uh, recent uh, history of Europe. Uh, because uh, we had pages in our history, in Ukrainian history, when we didn't enjoy this support after World War II, and then we lost, uh, basically. And even previously, 100 years ago, we lost our independence. So thank you. Um, but uh, So we are defined as an industry. We are defined as a country. And uh, we just... Uh, I have, I have these two things to ask you. One, uh, more specific... Please support our initiatives uh, of verified agencies, verified somebody you know. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Everyone invited here is someone you can trust because we are on the ground. We know what's happening. We know what's the need uh, at every specific moment of history. So please do support our um, our initiatives. And uh, my second, actually, uh, my second uh, thought is uh, more uh, more general. I would say because uh, it's about, uh, it's more, so, sorry if I sound uh, too political, but uh, please uh, do not let our war to slip off the radar in your country. Uh, we are closer to you than you think. We are not that far. We are not some, some kind of uh, alien country. What is happening in Ukraine will definitely impact how the world will live for generations to come. And by saying this, I mean it's is a cherishing. This is very simple uh, choice: is a cherishing freedom and democracy, or on the other side, uh, it's uh, in autocracy, war power games, and disregard of international law. And the former is definitely a safer world, the life where humankind can think about growth, not the war. And uh, you guys in the West should be proud of yourself uh, when we win. When we will. When we win. Sorry. Uh, because this will be our joint victory, uh, not only Ukrainians, but joint victory for the better world ahead. So please uh, keep us uh, in the radar. It's very important, and it's very important for both of us. Uh, I completely agree with my colleague, Sergei. Uh, completely agree, 100%. I just want to add that uh, I am really proud by Ukrainians. I am really proud by our community, at the community here in Ukraine. We are really proof to the world and to ourselves that we can withstand any difficulties, that, you know, like we can work through any circumstances and we will actually win as a result. You know, uh, we can do everything and, uh, you know, like uh, we, we will never, we will never, you know, like uh, uh, we will never lose. We are playing a huge price, but we actually survived and we will win this war and uh, uh, war of minds of the people in in the world yeah because we are fighting on an informational front i would say and so i also have a message one important message uh, so and my message is to the brands 
uh, abroad. You know, so uh, now many brands are trying to sit on two chairs. For example, last week we had a huge uh, conflict here in Ukraine with the brand Ashan, because in Russia it really supports uh, Russian troops. It helps them to kind of with with the food, with uh, with different clothes, etc. It's all this stuff. So uh, many big businesses are now trying to with all their might to keep business as usual. You know, like it's it's uh, you know like guys, nothing personal. It's just business. You know, so. And it is understandable because we all know, like, yeah, Russia is a huge market and everyone wants to be, like, friends with this market because there are, like, 100 million people with money there. They're living there. So but that's understandable. But, you know, as long as this happens, their taxes, they become these missiles and shells that falls in Ukraine every, like, every week, every day. So brands today, uh, I think that brands today has a huge impact on, on the masses, on the masses of the people. They don't just talk about the, you know, like the quality of yogurt or the quality of milk, but they communicate with the large audiences. And people's opinion depend on clear positions of these brands. People listen to their brands, their favorite brands. And so when we talk about Ukraine and our struggle, it is a struggle for democracy, for the, like, the, the human dignity. And to be neutral you know, in this war means to kind of supply the enemy. So uh, I would really like from like the name of all the Ukrainian like representatives of this ad uh, of our ad community to ask brands to try to clearly formulate their support to Ukraine because uh, we need this we need their help in order to kind of win on the informational front itself yeah thank you thank you for for this for letting me see this. oh thank you for joining Thank you so much for coming on and, and letting us know about your experience and talking candidly and, and sending out that message. It needs to be heard. Um, yeah, thanks thank again. You. And now to end with some creative that's caught our eye. Here to discuss some campaigns, I'm joined by Helen Rhodes, Executive Creative Director at Bartle Bogle Hegarty and Ian Hartfield, Chief Creative Officer at New Commercial Arts. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Ever wondered what a singing hamster sounds like? Well, if you've seen Pringle's latest ad by Grey London, you'll know it's quite screechy. Titled Wonderfully Different, the spot opens with three friends sharing a tube of Pringle's multigrain, commenting on how they are wonderfully different because they contain fibre grains but have a familiar taste. One friend compares the snack to her friend's hamster, who sits in its cage, passionately performing dramatic electro music. It was directed by Jeff Lowe through Biscuit and created by Christopher Lapham, Aaron McClurk and Cameron Sutherland. Let's have a listen. These new multigrain Pringles, they're like regular Pringles, but different. I like your hamster. What do you mean? It's wonderfully different. New multi-tasty multigrain Pringles. Same, yet wonderfully different. Helen, what did you think of the work? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll start by saying I liked it. I think, you know, it, they're obviously taking that sort of American approach of getting the product point up front and then, you know, you've got the freedom to show something funny, uh, which I quite like. I think like being sort of unashamed about saying what you want to say and then do something dumb, but dumb in a good way. Um, I think, you know, there's those American ads like like Geico when it's like, Everybody knows that 15 minutes with Geico can save you 15% on your car insurance. And then 
but does everybody know blah blah, blah. and then you know you see something uh, really funny like Pinocchio being a really bad motivational speaker <laughs> um I guess you don't see that approach as much in the UK um you know we tend to do it sort of the opposite way like setting up a gag you know setting the scene really getting into it and then sort of debunking it at the end you know so using the end line or the last scene to be that punchline but Americans are like nah just just say what you want to say and then make people laugh which which I, I kind of admire seems so simple to just be like what here we go why don't we just make a hamster sound like actually yeah a hamster would, yeah so I'm sure a lot of conversations there was a lot of meetings a lot of intense discussion about what that should be you know I guess it's it's quite a yeah it feels quite a tight sort of I think it's 30 seconds isn't it I mean you know if they'd have had longer I think the the sound of the hamster just you know would start to on and on for a bit <laughs> well no I, I think that would have made it funnier <laughs> Ian what did you think yeah I was I'll, I'll echo most of that I mean I was I was think I was relieved when the hamster made that noise because I was dreading <laughs> it just sort of having some kind of singing voice or something and then it would have been the whole thing would have fallen a bit flat I think because as, as Helen intimated there I think it comes from a a very familiar starting point. You know, we've all had a brief that says, you know, it's a little bit different or it's slightly different. You know, it's, it's not the most helpful strategy for, for a creative to get. It's a bit like, oh, that, that old one again. Um, and then sort of insert crazy outcome here or, you know, and certainly pets and animals have been done to death. So, you know, there was a, I, was starting, I was watching, thinking, oh, no, you know, it all seems a little bit predictable. But then when it made that noise, um, you know, I, I, sort of, I sort of fell in love with it a lot more. So uh, that's, that's definitely the key to it standing out and being interesting. I mean, I guess interesting challenge when you've got that far into the ad because it's, you know, it obviously doesn't make that noise until, you know, probably 20 seconds in. So I was ready to click off just thinking, oh, right, it's a singing hamster. You know, it was almost like didn't need to see the result. We just go, it's going to be a singing hamster. I've got it. It's crazy. But then when it made that noise, oh, yeah, it's good. That's funny. So saved, saved by execution, you know, and obviously a brilliant director. So um, I was going to say Jeff Lowe is obviously known for his very absurd humour. Um, why do you think it's so effective in advertising? Uh, yeah, I guess, especially when you've got such a short amount of time, 30 seconds, I think if you can make people laugh, then you stand out. Um, and yeah, Jeff Lowe is, is great. I think, you know, it's such a good use of 30 seconds. Like it doesn't, be, I think it's not a lot of time and often you can try and do too much and then it feels really rushed. Um, so where it's, it had a good pacing and I think everything felt considered like the casting was was good the delivery of that first line was good and you know um I think when the guy says you know that's my hamster this you know the delivery of that is 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 really funny he's so prolific yeah he's a master I mean the casting is great that guy's great and the way the first line's delivered and yeah there's no one better at it the, the team would have been you know obviously everyone's first choice for that kind of spot so you know and then and delighted when he we agreed to do it, when he agreed to do it because is the master at it. Next up, we have Burberry. Uh, early this month, the fashion house introduced the first creative expression of the brand under new creative director Daniel Lee, which introduced a modernised logo, an evolution of Burberry's original equestrian knight design heritage motif. London photographer and filmmaker Tyrone LeBron shot the campaign, uh, which embedded the logo in a non-classical pop photography. Um, Ian, were you a fan? I liked it. Um, I can see the craft in it. Um, it's obviously very, very cool. And uh, I didn't obviously, yeah, the thing with, the thing with um, you know, fashion advertising, it's, it's sort of in its own kind of category and sort of more um, conventional advertising creatives like myself, yeah, sort of struggle, struggle to sort of 
uh, draw any conclusions from it really because it never has any message. It's just here's a, here's a great bit of film with the clothes, things looking amazing, and and off you go. Um, so it ticked all those boxes. I mean, I suppose the one thing from from my side, from our side that we think about is every now and then, you know, uh, Burberry in particular do some does something which really stands out for everybody else, like the flying people thing that was last year, I think, a year before. Yeah, whatever it's called, I thought that was that was brilliant. So that, that's an example of, you know, they've got no particular strategy or brief or thing to get across, and you have a chance to then really make something surprising and entertaining and delightful. And that had that. Whereas what I saw just now, anyway, is it doesn't have that element. It's just beautifully shot, very cool. You know, the logo looked great, but there wasn't really there wasn't anything else there. But then I'm I, equally, as I said, I'm not almost don't feel qualified to judge fashion advertising in a way, certainly not with what I wear. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, it did feel like quite a departure from where they've been um, sort of relatively recently with all of the mega force spots, like, yeah, the, the people flying through the air one, the open spaces and even like night creatures and uh, with the, you know, the singing, the one with singing in the rain, uh, which, yeah, I guess like there wasn't like a high concept to those, but... I don't know, they almost felt like those big ads that you, you used to get a lot more of, right, that Jonathan Glazer and 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 directors like that used to do, which, um, and just, yeah, just really beautiful and um, captivating, uh, whereas this, I guess, felt a bit more expected maybe from a fashion house, um, the kind of abstract imagery, soft focus, grainy footage, mm. bit of lens flare, you mm-hmm. know, good yeah, looking. urban poetry coming through as well, you know. Yeah. Are... yeah, good looking people sort of in, you know, amazing clothes, staring sort of moodily and suggestively at the camera. Um, I guess it's, yeah, more of a theme or a feeling that you're supposed to get rather than, you know, an idea. Um, I mean, I did, you know, I did, I did like the music. I did think the music was quite captivating. Um maybe not the lyrics was a bit more that sort of urban poetry was a bit expected but I don't know like the, it, it did ha- it did sort of have a nice vibe I guess and and maybe that's sort of what they were they were trying to do um you know it's 15 seconds I, I, you know Imogen you said it's part of a, a bigger sort of launch campaign which I haven't seen the other stuff actually but maybe it was just more trying to be a bit more Instagram or TikTok friendly and, you know, sort of talk to maybe a different audience than, than the Megaforce stuff had potentially. Yeah, I was going to say, we're obviously only just seeing one, one snippet of what is a whole new brand identity and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. There's probably a whole load of work out there. And when you see it all together and see it in all the different channels, then it probably adds up to a, to a much bigger thing than just a little just a short film we saw. I think a big part of it is bringing it back to sort of very British roots. So I like the grittiness of it. I like the fact that the fox, you know, there's a London sort of mangy fox looking at you in the photography. Like there's just little touches to it. Um, and I touched obviously on the the logo. Um, but yeah, but part of the discussion was the fact that they changed the sans serif font Um in 2018 a lot of fashion houses all changed to sans serif and they all became it says it's spurred on by a desire to fit uh, digital mobile devices um but they all just sort of became this big homogenous uh united thing of of, of sans serif so why, why do you think that font can cause so much uh it can draw so much attention if you sort of change it back it's not that much difference if you really think about it yeah, I, I guess when there's such sort of iconic brands and the, the the logo is, you know, 
such a part of their identity, you know, and then when that's changed a lot of the time, people are either in uproar or they love it. Usually it's, it's sort of the former, right? That why would you change something like that? It's not the most extreme change, is it? No, uh, it's very it, subtle. It was sans serif, right? And now it's gone a bit serif Yeah, it's still so. in the serif territory. <laughs> sort of halfway. It's like, yeah. you know, very fashion-y. It's, it's, one, it's not one thing or the other. You can't, you know, you can't categorize us. Yeah, in fashion, that's, that's a move. <laughs> now, that would have taken a, that would have taken a whole year's worth of work. You know, it would have done. So you know. Um, finally, we can go. We can go back to more straight advertising. Um, we have Klarna's "That Smooth," uh, which was made in house. The ad is fronted by Paris Hilton, injecting the brand with the Y two K flair. Um, and the film sees Hilton buy an ice cream from fellow Klarna ambassador and influencer Bretman Rock. It was directed by Tanya Mino. Let's have a listen. Girl, look. What? It's a long dog. Stretch your payments with Klarna. I, given Klarna has previously been fronted by Snoop Dogg, Helen, do you think Paris is a rightful um, follow-up to it? I suppose a bit like the, the, the Burberry work in as it felt like they'd taken a bit of a deviation in approach, you know, with the idea and scale. I don't actually know if I've seen the Klarna Snoop Dogg work. I've seen the ASAP Rocky um, and I like some of the previous stuff they've done that is just not with celebrities, but with, um, you know, just being a bit weird and and quirky, which, you know, felt, felt yes, quite so, sort of surprising and interesting, at least sort of visually. Um, and I felt like that kind of level of idea and craft was was more absent in this one with with Paris Hilton, like, I thought the post on the sausage dog was was really bad. Can you say that? Can you I say can. that? Yeah. Okay. It's too late. Um, it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if they sort of spent all their money on Paris and then, you know, didn't have a left left over for the director. Um, so yeah, and I, I guess I'm not sort of a massive Paris Hilton fan. So I think. Like there's the correlation between her catchphrase. We're bringing it all out now. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, revelations. Paris. I'm sure sorry, she's going to be gutted Paris to hear that. Listening to the campaign podcast, we apologise. I know. I mean, you know, I thought I found it quite funny with uh, Nicole Richie. You know, yeah, they were, they were on the road trip. But apart from that, um, uh, where was I? Oh yeah, Paris. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I didn't get that, you know, because she, she, she's got a catchphrase of that's hot. And then in the spot, she says that's smooth, um, which I missed. But I'm sure the more hardcore Paris Hilton fans would would, would get that. Um, I did sort of do a little bit of internet sleuthing because uh, I sort of thought there's got to be more, right? If you're if you're partnering with with Paris, there's there's got to be more. So I saw that they're doing an activation of a interactive pop up, um, sort of celebrating like the shopping in the early 2000s which again is called like house of y2k and i think you can win one of paris's velour tracksuits so you know having said i'm not a fan i'm definitely going to enter that yeah look at you i'm surprised by this y2k resurgence i feel like it's too soon yeah. i feel like it's only just happened yeah <laughs> it's like i guess we had the 90s not that long ago resurgence of the fashion but what did you think ian did you like it you gonna go you know did uh did, no, I, did... I really i really struggled with this i'm afraid um 
and and yeah, obviously not Paris Hilton isn't going to be right at the top of my list of favourite people. So a lot, a lot of it, a lot of it would have passed me by. I'm, I have to accept that more and more that I'm not target marketing some of these things, most of these things. But um, I just as an ad, if you asked me to come out an ad, I thought it was kind of it's just a kind of a non-event in a way. Just again, I know this is uh, probably shouldn't say this either, but just very good news for people like Helen and myself because it's a good effort, a good effort to effort for. Um, not going in house and going to go to an, an agency because it just doesn't it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel considered it just feels um, I don't know it, it feels all over the place as you said you can say you can see money in some places and then, and then not in others and it leaves me cold completely cold. What did you think, Imogen? I think Paris is that uh, I can see the allure of having Paris as as it's again you talk about not being the target audience. I think she would attract a lot of people. Um, I just think the ad left me wanting more. Um, I kind of w- I wanted a bit more to the narrative. Um, it's sort of. I mean, she's just done a ten minute TikTok ad, which yeah, I saw um, that is with Hilton, going, wasn't it? The hotels, which has been pretty, I think, popular. Yeah, it's gone down well. You know, so I don't know. At least like that, she's doing something. That's, there's a headline there, right? Like the first ever ten minute TikTok ads, and she does NFTs as well. Yeah, but I, I, I wonder if you, you sort of said it, Helen. I wonder if I wonder if they actually were trying to sort of stylistically pastiche and sort of be a little bit almost deliberately enough you know you said about the post on the stretchy dog and sort of watch it again and go well maybe, maybe they were sort of attempting that knowing ironic it's a little bit you know that sort of style which is always really this is a good example really hard to pull off because you never know someone whether, whether they're meaning it or not um so that that could be why we just sort of not left not really knowing how to feel about it they almost should have really gone for that then right so it was obvious yeah. And, yeah. and had more you know, I think there's a subtle thing where the ice cream like gets bigger at the end but if they, that that had, that had really gone for that and like leaned into that humor I tell you what I did like I like the voice I don't know if they do it in other rest of the campaign but I like the voiceover lots of voices reading the voiceover yeah. is that something they do in other th- I don't I, do I couldn't tell you whether they did another ones I wouldn't want to be the authority on that but I have heard a lot of positive feedback to that part yeah I just as we, we're always looking for different ways to do those kind of things but to sort of layer over different voices I thought that was that was um pretty cool there you go it's something positive <laughs> let's end on that note thank you so much to the two of you for joining us today to to come on and discuss some creative work no props oh thank you it was fun sadly that's all we've got time for thanks again to the two Sergeys for joining today's episode to fill us in about their experience of the ukraine war so far and to ian and helen for helping me break down the creative work and last but not least charlotte for discussing this week's news if you'd like to learn more about what we have been discussing today please visit our website campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket Studio Manager Nav Pal and Editorial Assistant Sean Thurgood and also our producer Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio and also to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye. Goodbye.